0: Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. My name is Ben Seaman. I serve on staff as uh, our lead minister and want to welcome you to week two of our Christmas series, BC Before Christmas, where we're looking at some of the Old Testament prophets uh, describing when our Messiah, when Jesus the Messiah, will come on Christmas morning. Uh, There's probably nothing like the uh, celebratory anticipation and the hope of a child waiting for. Christmas morning. I know it was for me, but I think as I get older, seeing my nieces and nephews open the gifts that my wife and I uh, have purchased for them is probably equally hopeful and equally uh, incredible. I asked some of our staff, would you be willing to share a photo of a, uh, this is going to be good, uh, of a gift that you really wanted as a child? One of our staff members didn't get Uh, The gift they requested, so I'll let you figure that out. The first one is Brian Yankee, who why Whitney, as a 90s kid, wanted a super soaker water gun. And uh, I don't know how you get through the 90s without a super soaker water gun. I grew up with two other boys, uh, and our house was littered with super soakers. I'm sure there are some stories that Phil and Marianne Yankee, Brian's parents, can tell you about Brian and his, Brian and Mark, probably running around with super soakers in the dead of winter. If not, you guys should make up one, uh, anyways. The second photo is from our family minister, uh, Andrew Frost, who all he wanted was a Lego set uh, for Christmas, which is awesome. I admire people that love Legos and puzzles. I just don't have the I don't have the patience for them or the thumbs. I, you know, I misspell and texting and autocorrect, and I just don't have the patience for it. But I love the idea of actually sitting down, period. Uh, and completing anything. Um, our last photo is something that I would want for Christmas and wanted. Uh, Jenny LaCasse wanted, do you remember this? A boom box. Anybody remember these boom boxes? Now, now listen, listen, you young kids. I'm so old. Um, <clears throat> back in the day, There was a time where it took you longer than 8.5 seconds to download a playlist off of Spotify. You had to use this bad boy. And you see in the middle on the bottom where the letters RCA, that was where you would put your cassette tape in. If you don't know what a cassette tape is, ask your parents or what you do with everything else, Google it. Um, in order to create a playlist you had to listen and I don't know if you know what this is to a DJ that would play music and you would wait for your song to come on when your song came on you would hit play and record like don't freak out too much because if your fingers slip then you lost your chance at the same time and record the song now I, I don't know what it's like in the teen dating world and I shouldn't because that would be weird but <laughs> Um, Back in my day, if you liked someone, you had to create a playlist on a cassette tape with all these sappy 80s and 90s love songs. Let me tell you something. I would get carpal tunnel (laughs) waiting for the songs that I wanted to give to the person that I liked. Eventually, I just gave up and said, it's a demo. Here's two or three songs. Figure it out, all right? You know, when you think about hope, you probably don't think about the vulnerability of hope. At least probably not on Christmas morning, right? Uh, Because after all, you're waiting for Santa to come. Thank you, Dr. Fauci, for clearing Santa to deliver gifts this year and also beating Amazon Prime. It truly is a miracle. But when you think about Christmas morning, you probably don't think about the vulnerability of hope as much as maybe the excitement of hope. But if you think about hope, there is some measure of vulnerability, right? Like, I hope 2021 is better than 2020, right? I hope that I can do things like go to concerts and blow out candles with my own breath in 2021, right? I hope I can gather with a group of people larger than a family reunion, right? But there's, the vulnerability of hope is you just, we just don't know yet. We, we're, not really, we're not really sure about what's going to happen in the future. The prophets were dealers of hope. And being a prophet wasn't always an easy gig. Uh, Today, we're going to look at uh, a brief synopsis in the time that I have of the prophet Jeremiah. In around 627 BC, Jeremiah was was a young guy, maybe 17 ish, maybe a little older, where God showed up and said, Hey, man, it's in Hebrew, hey, man, um, I want you to be a prophet. And I want you to speak for me to my people. More eloquently, he says it this way in Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you before I formed you. It's interesting that you can know something before it's formed. That's, an, that's interesting. In your mother's womb, before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. It is annoying <laughs> to be a teenage boy and feel like God has a calling on your life. For me, I was 17. It's annoying because I want to do what my other friends do, which is the opposite of what Jesus asked us to do at 17, and being a guy, just getting your own license. Back in the day, a car was a symbol of freedom, not so much anymore. It's a cell phone and a, an iPhone and a smart device. You know, if, if Jeremiah um, sort of, if God said, I want all the prophets to stand in line, and you're going to draw straws. And whoever gets the shortest straw is going to have the hardest ministry. That's Jeremiah. Jeremiah was actually known uh, as uh, the weeping prophet. He was known as the weeping prophet. And, and let, let, me, let me just share this with you. Um, just because God calls you into a hard thing doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a formative thing. Right? 2020 has been hard, overwhelming. Hard for uh, the the world, and just because God calls us into something difficult doesn't mean He's left us. Doesn't mean He's abandoned us. It does mean we believe the songs that we just sung all my life. You've been faithful, right? Not just a uh, you know a, a love song or a hallmark card that we read to feel good. No, all of my life you have been faithful to me, even when I've been faithless to you. I hope that will mean more in just a few minutes. Like we do every week in this series, I want to show you a quick video of a child describing in a Christmas fashion uh, Jeremiah's life and his reality. So check out this video. So it's 1,000 years before Christmas around 930 BC. Israel splits into two kingdoms led mostly by bad kings. So God sent the prophets to speak words that were true, but nobody listened, and the kingdoms fell through. In 587, the prophet Jeremiah warned his city. The Babylonians have Jerusalem surrounded. it. It didn't look pretty, but the king doesn't believe it. He thinks they can still win. So he finds a jail cell for Jeremiah and proceeds to throw him in. He's called the weeping prophet. He was at the end of his rope. But even in a dark prison cell, God gives Jeremiah hope. Oh man, I I love those videos. I love that little brief synopsis of Jeremiah's life. Imagine being called into ministry or having a sense of what that might mean at 16. And you tell your friends, you tell your family. Maybe Jeremiah, like I did, I would get looks from my aunts and uncles like, Did you fail your SAT test? Like, what? what Did you spell your name wrong? Is that why you're gonna be a pastor? And then you get your degree in God. You're ready, right? Such an American thing to say. And then you go into ministry and you're doing what you think God is asking you to do, right? Like the prophets. And and like the little girl said, throughout all of the Old Testament or all the prophetic books, and definitely including Jeremiah's life, guess what? You guys don't listen to us, right? Nobody listened to the prophet Jeremiah, not even the king. And Jeremiah is telling you, telling the Israelites, hey, God told me wrath is coming, right? The Babylonians have us. It's not looking good, and yet nobody listened to him. Let me tell you something. Ministry is tough. It's a lonely place. I have cried many tears this year. Over what's happened, not only in our church but in churches across the country and even the world, many of my friends—and this isn't a shot at them at all, not at all—have left the ministry uh, because of 2020. God, I want to be faithful to you. I want you to do what me, uh, what, what uh, I want to do what you ask of me. But uh, these Christians are driving me crazy. I'm doing what you ask me to do, and nobody. Is listening to me. And this is where we find Jeremiah in chapter uh, 33, Jeremiah 33, where Jeremiah is on the floor of a dark, damp prison cell, and God shows up again in his life reminding him of his calling. In Jeremiah 33, God says this to Jeremiah, the day will come, this is the Christmas language here, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things I have promised them in those days and at that time, here's the Jesus language, I will raise up a righteous descendant of or from King David's line. He will do what is just and right throughout the land, unlike some of the kings of the northern and southern kingdom. In that day, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. Wow. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever lived in a high-risk home before, where there was abuse or neglect, or maybe you have someone that you know. This is sort of descriptive of the Israelites' history in this time period that they probably would not describe themselves as to feel as if they were safe. God concludes this, and this will be its name. So this is the name. Whenever the Messiah comes, here's his name. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. So through Jeremiah, God tells his people, better days are coming. Now, here's what's really hard to why it's hard to be a prophet. None of us, like if we were planning a church and there was an option for someone to be a prophet, no intelligent person would sign up for this. Here's why. God says, hey, my promise is still true. Tell my people better days are coming. You're just going to have to wait about 600 years, right? How do you know like when Jesus says to the lame man, uh, when his buddies bring him down through the, through the ceiling, and Jesus says, get up and walk, your sins are forgiven, like what's easier to say? Well, it's easier to say, get up and walk, because nobody really knows if that guy's sins are forgiven until what? Like he dies, right? It's the same thing with being a prophet. Hey, Israel, God spoke to me. Okay, what, what now? What now? Better days are coming, like five, seven, 10 generations from now. Don't you want to believe me? And here's this is not the reason why I'm a Christian, but it strengthens my faith in the Bible is that the Bible is written over, you know, depending on who you want to read, 1500 years, several continents, tons of different authors, and they're saying the same thing. Now, I'm going to read to you the fulfillment of Jeremiah 33, roughly 600 years later in Luke chapter 2. Luke writes, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This happened a lot in the first century. No big deal. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, listen, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. Joseph is one of the fulfillments of Jeremiah 33, six or so hundred years before Luke chapter 2 was ever written. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. Joseph was part of the lineage and the line of King David. And so he and Mary, this is why women are better than men, took an 85-mile trek to, to be accounted for. This is pre-Uber days, right? And in Luke 2, 6-7, through 7, Luke writes, Dr. Luke, I should say, while they were there, the time came for a baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn a son. Now, Luke, or sorry, Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen, 16, and this will be its name. The Lord is our righteousness. In about 3.7 seconds, I merged 600 years of history together. Look, this year has been hard, and it's been really hard for, for pastors as, as well. I, I, I don't know how long someone should stay in there to see if God's promises are going to ring true in, in, in the sense of the ministry sense. But for Jeremiah, in his case, it was generations and generations down the line, and yet God still remained faithful to his promises that a righteous, the righteousness of God will be born to someone in the line and lineage of King David, which would have been Joseph, which would have been Jesus. Now, now, righteousness is not really a word we we use. I don't. I don't hear. Uh, I sound old. I don't hear the younger generation saying that. Um, may, maybe if you. This is totally. I'm like judging people. If you're from California, I don't know when you surf. Maybe you might use the word righteousness. But to give a brief sort of kindergarten, first grade definition, uh, righteousness is sort of living in right standing with God. Everything is okay. Uh, with you and with God. Instead, it's sort of like uh, a better question that we should probably ask our Christian brothers and sisters is not how are you doing, but is it well with your soul? And so righteousness is sort of saying, yes, it is well with my soul. It is well between my relationship with God, my family, my responsibilities, everything is well. But you and I know, especially after a hard year like this, that nobody is righteous. Um, and you know, for me, since I moved to New England, just story time, just my own story, trying to live out my own journey. I don't do it just because like, just I get paid to talk on a weekend. Um, I, I've been trying to, to help people journey with Jesus and just by the example that I'm living. And, and I don't know if this is true for you or true for you if you're watching online, but um, my friends that aren't Jesus followers um, tend to use behavior as sort of the like, you know, I appreciate you, Ben, you're a nice guy. I'm really encouraged by the stuff you post online, but that's your thing. I'm going to do my thing, right? Because didn't Billy Joel say, sinners are more fun, right? Which is true. Um, I'm going to go do my own thing. It it seems like whether or not you go to church or not, and I could be wrong, that's fine. I'll come back next Sunday. I'll be wrong about something else. It seems like most people understand god 's not cool with us doing bad things, right I think we would use the word the language sin, but if someone doesn't have a church background it's probably probably if there's a God, he probably's not cool with us doing bad things right The tension is that we would rather follow our own morality than follow Jesus in other words um, I don't know that we really realize that our, um, our best days, where we tip the waiter really well, we don't cuss anybody out in our heads, because we never say that aloud loud, because we're Christians, on, on 93 when they cut us off, on our best days, that still cost Jesus' life. Did, did you know that? Your goodness, not just your sin, put Jesus on The cross. And so for me, that's where I hear a lot of the language with my non Christian friends. You know, I know you're a pastor, you go do your thing, but, and I admire what you do and you're a lot of fun to hang out with, but that's kind of where timeout, that's kind of where it ends. And Paul goes, Yeah, in Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Yeah, there is no one that is righteous, not one person. All right? Don't do this, but later today, look at your spouse and say, honey, there's no one that's righteous, not even you. Don't do that. Wait, wait till after Christmas, okay? Depending you got them a gift they actually wanted. And Paul goes, yeah, nobody's righteous. And yet, <clears throat> how often do we play the morality game, right? I mean, who among us is, um, well, I, I, I'm assuming, because who, who among us is, would say that we, we went and walked through 2020 flawlessly? Right, we never lost our cool. We never screamed at our kids. We never cussed out the internet and trying to <laughs> trying to communicate with our teachers. You know what I mean? Uh, schoolwork, like we've ne- we didn't do any of that. Right, and yet that's often how we base our faith on, with God. Right, I yelled at my kids. I yelled at my wife. Um, I, I'm I want to. I don't want to kill my kids mainly because I don't want to do twenty to life, but. I can't understand why I keep asking them, did you submit your homework to your teacher? And they say, I didn't know I had any. Like, how do you not know? You got the email, right? I've got an app. This is 2020. You can run, but you can't hide, right? Why can't you do this on your own? Yeah, we've all been there, right? We've all, we've all messed it up. There's days and conversations that we wish we could have back. Nobody is righteous. And so yet, why do we think about God in terms of, have we been good? That's Santa language, to be honest with you. That's not gospel language. Right? Romans 3.10, no one's righteous, but yet Jeremiah 33, God says, there is somebody that's righteous. His name will be, the Lord is our righteousness. Righteousness is not only a major theme of the Bible, it's a characteristic and attribute of God himself. Theologians call this the great exchange. Hang with me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, Jesus, we might become what? The righteousness of God. What a terrible mistake at layaway at Walmart, right? God goes to Walmart, right? takes out his righteousness, gives it to us, and we give him our sin. Now, have you ever, um, thinking about a hike I did with my buddy Josh I was not ready for, have you ever done a hike and someone, like a friend that's like really enthusiastic, like, come on, let's do this hike, you don't need anything, it's going to be awesome, seven hours later, right? That was me in Musalaki with my buddy Josh. I just moved here, this is like before I started working out, and I could breathe and walk at the same time. Or have you ever tried to run with a friend or do anything uh, that you thought, you know, I I can do this in 10, 15, 20 minutes, and you're like, I've never experienced anything like this before. That's kind of, I would imagine, a little bit of what Jesus is feeling on the cross. Somebody that lived a perfect, sinless life is now dying for Because of the penalty of sin, which theologians call um, that's our justification, but is also dying by the power of our sin. Theologians call that process sanctification. You see what I'm saying? That on the cross, Jesus isn't sinning, but he's become all of those things that we felt in the midst of running away from him, choosing autonomy over community, choosing self-sufficiency over grace, feelings of um, isolation and insecurity, and lack of intimacy when we're looking at pornography, feelings of anger and resentment because our spouse won't do what we've asked them to do. And over time, we've sort of drifted apart. And Jesus is feeling those things. The depression and the anxiety and the frustration our students are feeling during this year. And the relentless, at least in the 90s, we could say the word goodbye and hang up the phone. The relentless bullying that takes place, not only on social media, through texting groups, they're being isolated. Right? Jesus <laughs> has all of the empathy in the world, not that he did those sins, that he paid for them and he felt the weight of them. Now, okay, great. <laughs> Can I be a good person? No. Good people don't go to heaven. They go to hell. You don't need to be a Christian to be good. Well, great, Ben, I'm out of here. See you never. Awesome. Here's what we want, but I think we might be afraid or hesitant or insecure or whatever that word is to step into. Listen, this is the most beautiful thing. I'm going to pretend like I'm a prophet, so I could be wrong. This is the most beautiful thing that you're going to hear this morning. You cannot behave your way into the love of God. God, through Jesus, behaved His way to you. In other words, the gospel does not judge you by your behavior. The gospel judges you by the behavior of Jesus. Jesus was faithful to the Father on your behalf. So let's stop being, and I'm trying to say this as pastorally as I can. (laughs) I know pastoral gifting, not my strengths, but let me say this as pastorally as I can. Let's stop with the insecurity and the arrogance, which is the other side, that constant like, self-hatred we have. We, we think arrogance is, is um, someone that's very like, dominant and loud and boisterous, but there's the other side of arrogance is more of like the introverted, like, woe is me, I hate myself. Let's stop hiding. Let's stop hiding behind behavior and thinking, I know Jesus died for me, I know I have grace, I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die, but yet we still focus on our behavior. You think way too much, you think more about your behavior than your heavenly father does. Jesus, or the father, looks at Jesus's behavior on your behalf. Now, does it matter how you live? Yeah, of course, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say, I'm talking to talk about is salvation and righteousness, Now, here's the other beautiful truth. Because you cannot behave your way into the love of God, Jesus goes to the cross on your behalf, and then the Father declares you righteous. You cannot physically or behaviorally be righteous in this lifetime. Righteousness has to have already been attained by somebody else, and that person they give it to you. They speak it over your life. They declare you are righteous, which makes the gospel so mind-blowing yeah. compared to any other philosophy or any other world religion. Every other world religion, because I'm a nerd and I checked them out, Christianity is the only religion that says you don't have to wait this side of eternity to, to wind up like where you're going to end up. No, And it also tells you, I can show you the way of life, this side of eternity. I'm not saying that Christians are better than... I'm I'm just telling you what it claims, the tenets of our Christian faith. And sometimes what keeps us from having a thriving relationship with Jesus is that we get so downtrodden on our own behavior that we never realize or step into or be gracious for or whatever that language is that Jesus has already declared us Completely perfect, completely righteous. Because when the Father looks at us, He sees not our moral, ethical attempts to be loved by Him; He sees Jesus's faithfulness on our behalf. Friends, that, that, that's the that, like. New England's a very wealthy part of the country. Like, how can you offer hope to people? that, generally speaking, make decent salaries, can get their kids Apple products every Christmas. Because hope is not a freaking product. It's not a, th- it's not a thing. Hope is a person, and I don't care if you live in a drug-infested project community in a downtown or gated community with well-kept lawns, and you, have, you hire a company to cut your grass and plow your snow, of which I would be jealous, right? Hope is Jesus. It doesn't matter where you live or how much money you make. That's the hope of Christmas, is that regardless of our behavior, God still comes for us. I can't believe I'm, <laughs> I can't believe I'm using this analogy. Uh, John Hopkins University did a study that, uh, that illustrates the power of hope. They used rats, so you know where this is going. And they put rats in water, and I can't believe I'm using this. I, sorry, God, I repent, um, kind of. They put rats in water, and the gig was to see how long they could survive we're terrible people, survive in water. And the running rate that rats would be willing to swim in water before they give up and go to rat heaven is about 10 minutes. And then they did a second group of rats where they put them in water and every minute, 45 seconds, two minutes, somebody or a thing would pull them out of the water, catch their breath, and then drop them back in. Every 30, 45 seconds, drop them out. Here's what the study showed. That if the first group of rats thought there was no hope, they would give up and drown. The second group of rats they learned from that if they had a sense of hope, they would keep going. And let me just ask you before I close here, do you sense that you're drowning or do you sense that you have some hope? And it's okay to say that I feel like I'm drowning. Just be your most authentic self in this moment, because if you say, I'm fine, and you're drowning, then that's worse than saying, uh, that's probably the worst thing that you can say. So many of us have looked through hope this year through, you know, worship songs in the car, conversations with friends, remembering something significant in our relationship with Jesus, um, going to church physically, watching online digitally. We're all looking for hope, friends, and I don't. Maybe more importantly, maybe not. Maybe more importantly, your friends that don't know Jesus—they're looking for hope, something real, not, not a warm fuzzy card. I, I'm not against cards. I feel like I've been like railing Hallmark last two weeks. Not, not a warm fuzzy card, but a person, a human being that actually historically lived and married 600 years of history from a guy, a prophet in Jeremiah 33, who is down in the dumps to Luke chapter two through David and Mary's and the birth of Jesus. I'm telling you, I'm telling you now more than ever, the people you're around. And I, I get it. Like sharing your faith brings up so much insecurity right? What if it's weird? What if it's awkward? What if I stumble? What if they don't want to talk to me afterwards? I, like, I, 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 I get it. I get it. But there's nothing like a difficult shared experience that makes more people more than ever willing, at least willing, to have the conversation. Spiritual formation author, Pastor Henry Nowen wrote this. I found it very important in my own life to try to let go of my wishes and instead... To live in hope. I'm finding that when I choose to let go of sometimes petty and superficial wishes and trust that my life is precious and meaningful in the eyes of God, something really new, something beyond my own expectations, begins to happen for me. I wonder what it would look like, friends, if we let go of our wishes and instead lived in hope, which is to say, have hope a relationship with Jesus to be reminded again that even though we probably fumbled a lot, fumbled forward a lot in 2020, our behavior is the least of Jesus' concerns. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to work it out with him. He doesn't want our behavior to be the thing that, that makes us walk away from him at all. Father Richard War once wrote, the theological virtue of hope, this is so good, guys, is the patient and trusted willingness to live without closure. Let me say that again. The theological virtue of hope is the patient and trusting willingness to live without closure, without resolution, and still be content and even happy because our satisfaction is now at another level, and our source is beyond ourselves. My friends, hope is a vision of the future that changes us in the present, namely in the person, in the work of Jesus, the righteousness of God. Let me pray. God, thanks so much for this beautiful reminder That you uh, do not treat us as our sins deserve, although we do treat ourselves as our sins deserve. Partly, I think that's why we're in a huge mental crisis in our country and probably even the world. God, it's, it's really easy for us to look back on 2020 and think, man, I blew it. There's some relationships I walked away from that I think now that I have perspective, I wish I wouldn't have... Uh, done that. God, maybe there's, in a moment of clarity, there's maybe a confession that we've not um, walked with you, or maybe as we like to say here, we've not journeyed with you through 2020. Uh, to be honest, this has been hard for some of us, unbearable unspeakable for others. And yet, when we talk to you, our self-worth is not on the table. That's the least of your concerns. That's the least of your worries. And God, it's so hard to uh, to live in a reality that we're actually judged by Jesus' behavior and not our own, because our own behavior gets us girlfriends and boyfriends and husbands and wives and pay increases and job increases and local civic awards, our behavior, God does a lot for us. And um, I think if we're honest, sometimes we treat our good behavior as an idol. Because I mean, that's manageable, right? That's, that's something we, you know, if I do these good things and these things will happen, and yet we can't, we can't run away from this gnawing in our spirit that says it's probably not well within our bones, and that the justification that we try to get from our own behavior is just not, ultimately, it's not going to do it for us. And I think deep down inside, if we're honest, whether we're a Christian or not, we we probably have that sense, that void. So Jesus, I just pray for my friends that are here and watching online, that they would... um, consider what it might be to live a life that we've already been declared righteous and that our behavior, though horrible, wicked, and sinful, uh, has been paid for by the blood of Christ. And for some of us, maybe that's journeying towards you and becoming a Christian and being baptized. And for others, it can mean a myriad of other things. God, even at Christmas, we think about these things. We think about existential things. We think about our behavior. We think about what happened this year. We think about the relationships that have been severed or been formed. I just pray that you just be with us. Remind us again that we're not, we can't behave our way into your love. Jesus did that for us on our behalf, and we thank you for that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.